this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track, but there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. CJ Whalen started at Digo, sold it with his partner, Brad. You'll hear in this episode how they got three offers, quickly dismissed one because the cash up front was insufficient, but the other two they worked into and dialed them up a little bit, worked one off the other and got a very healthy multiple for the teleconference business that they started. You're going to hear a lot about partnerships in this episode and how to work through issues with your partner. If you're in business with your partner, I think you'll really appreciate uh, CJ's comments around his relationship with his partner, Brad. You'll also hear why Adigo was attractive to an acquirer. Again, they got three offers relatively quickly, and he'll dig into why they were such an attractive company to buy. Here to tell you the rest of the story is CJ Whalen. CJ, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you, John. Pleasure to join you today. Tell me about this company, Adigo. What did you guys do? We were a teleconferencing service provider. So if you've ever been on a conference call, had a webinar, uh, those sorts of services, we provide those for a variety of uh, business clients. Okay. So if I'm a uh, a service-based business, a professional services company, and I want to give out an 800 number that people can dial into, you would be providing that, that 800 number. That's correct. Are that, you like that, reselling that number? Like, are you buying the number from some provider? Like, I don't know, <laughs> I guess it used to be like Bell or all the, yeah, absolutely. Or I'm yeah, dating yeah, myself yeah. and asking this. But are My you back, reselling that yeah, number? Right? Yeah, absolutely. My background is in uh, software development and specifically telecommunications. So I came from a background of knowing telecom and working with large providers, that sort of thing. And that's kind of how I found myself into this business in the industry. But to answer your question, yeah, specifically, we'd have a pool of toll-free numbers, a variety of local numbers. Uh, and yeah, if you need to have a conference call, we could provide you with a toll-free number, uh, the codes you'd need. We had some uh, unique ways of providing that so that uh, it's funny these days uh, teleconferencing has been the butt of a lot of jokes about you always forget the passcode or the quality was bad so it's actually a lot of those issues that we found our niche in but short answer is that's the type of thing we do. interesting because because now in the days of zoom and i'm sure go to meeting go to webinar like i this is embarrassing i wouldn't have thought teleconferencing companies still existed. So yeah. what, why do people still use them as opposed to say a Zoom, uh, for example? John, that, that's actually a great question. And it's kind of funny because, you know, I, 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 I've sold my company a little over a year ago now, but I can still talk to it like, uh, like a good salesperson maybe could. Um, yeah, teleconferencing is a technology and industry that has been around a long time. In fact, I got my introduction to it working for the company out here in Colorado that essentially invented the technology. It really, that was in the 80s and then took off in the 90s. So very well established, actually a lot of commodity players. But uh, what's kind of interesting is at the end of the day, and certainly for a certain segment of uh, uh, people in the business world, when they want to conduct a meeting, and not doing it face-to-face, -face, the vast, vast majority of times, that's still done over a telephone. Hmm. Which, you know, when you think about it, it's like, oh yeah, I guess it is. But to answer your question, it's still a business, very vibrant, and in fact, growing. The, the minutes of teleconferencing services is still growing. And that's actually just using the good old-fashioned telephone. That's of course, these, Yeah, of course, these days, augmented by web and video uh, that's growing as well also. So and, and so I think of it as like a highly commoditized business. And I'll tell you why. 
Have you ever dialed into freeconference.com? Absolutely. I, I always laugh when I hear that because I'm like, okay, well, how do you make money if it's free teleconferencing? Like, what's the business model? So how did you guys make money? What was the business model? And how would you differentiate yourself from someone like a free conference? Yeah. It's free. And again, a great, a great question. In fact, we started our company in rough terms around the same time that free conference call uh, com was getting started. And uh, because I'm a big technology nerd, I could actually answer the question how they made money, but that's a discussion for another time because what's more, I think, pertinent is, you know, how do you compete with somebody who's free? Because we were never free. And uh, the, the way I can answer that question is almost in the way that we sell a lot. And here's kind of the situation the way I describe it. Let's suppose that you have a need for a conference, maybe two or three people. Uh, when it happens, isn't particularly time important. Uh, maybe it's some team, you just got to review something. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Freeconferencecall.com, call in when you can. If it's a little bit problematic, you, you work your way through it, end of story. Let's now take the situation where you're a CEO, major company, and you're now having a conference call where you're pitching your biggest idea to some of your biggest potential customers, all right? Do you want a situation where if they lose the passcode, they can't get in? Do you want a situation where because you went with a free service or the most discounted service that the audio quality was horrible, that you can only hear every other word? I mean, Don't do that. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. even still in today's... Um, very connected in amazing ways to communicate technologies that we have to have that guaranteed high quality ease of use service you don't get from the least expensive or free providers. So that's where we put our niche is to say when this is critical to your business and you want it to go flawlessly, come to a deco. It's kind of like the FedEx when it absolutely has to get there overnight, use FedEx. Like, yeah, sure, you could put it in the postal system, but who knows when it's going to get there. It, was that the basically the positioning that you took? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, there's, and like a lot of businesses, you learn a little bit of uh, extra frosting you could put on the cake. We had some unique ways of being uh, folks being able to call in without having to put in a passcode because we thought, one of the biggest challenges is people lose the passcode, they can't get in, and they're emailing, how do I get in? Uh, and just like a lot of things like that, we, we actually, um, we would always answer our customer service calls with a human operator, you know, something very rare these days. Hmm. Uh, and because uh, again, when it's that situation, it's like, well, I got an important conference call right now, people are trying to call in, but there's problems. If you're dealing with a chat bot and they're like, Oh, we'll get back to you in five minutes. Sure. You're freaking out. So it was these little things that uh, allowed us to succeed. And so how did you build the company? Um, did you have sales reps? Did you people order? Like, how did, how did you sell the, the service? Yeah, it was mainly direct sales that uh, we did internally. Was, telesales over the phone? Uh, by and large, yes. So you, you, you'd have telesales people calling up who, uh, like a, obviously a business saying, what's your... What's yep. your teleconferencing needs kind of thing? What are your teleconferencing needs? Yep, yep. T -t tough, uh, tough road to host occasionally, but that was uh, how we grew. Yeah, yeah. And this isn't like 1986. This was started in 2016, I believe, right? Yeah. 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 So this is, yeah. this, is, this is present days, so to speak. Yeah. And, and so how big did you get the company before you, you decided to sell it? Like what was, how big in terms of revenue or number of employees or just some proxy for size? Sure, sure. Uh, millions of dollars uh, annual. Uh, like hundreds revenue. of millions, tens of millions, low low single digit millions? We'll call, we'll call it the low millions. Okay. Okay. That's and, helpful. And size uh, employees wise between 15 to 20 depending. And it was, and I understand you started it with a partner. Maybe describe that a little bit for, for folks. What the relationship you had with your partner, I guess his name was Brad. That's correct. Uh, Brian and I are actually college buddies. Oh, and, okay. Uh, you know, maybe to tell a little bit of the origin story, uh, back in 2004, um, and Brad lives in Colorado uh, uh, also, 
we did a road trip to Minnesota to visit a friend who was sick. So we had a lot of time in the car and uh, we just got chatting about a bunch of things. And both Brian and myself had had some previous experience in the teleconferencing industry hmm. and more on kind of the hardware uh, platform side of things. <laughs> and, and when you're on that side of the equation, it was often a lament to be like, you know, you make your next dollar the next time you actually move a piece of iron. And the people on the other side of the fence always look like they had it greener because they only had to buy it once. They sell a service and then, you know, it's recurring revenue. Mm -hmm. and so, so that we're like, boy, it'd be good to be on that side of the fence. And we're like, yeah, why don't we start a company? So the origin story of Adigo was this road trip where Brad and I had a lot of time to talk and lament about how we felt the people we were selling to in our previous uh, iteration of both of our careers in teleconferencing, that's where we should be. So uh, that was the long story to kind of how we got started. We bootstrapped it ourselves, uh, just kind of um, got some initial early sales, just kind of picking up the phone, dialing, uh, referrals, just some other people we knew in the industry. Because if, if I'm correct in assuming there's nothing really, like you didn't have to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to develop some new product, right? Like you're essentially reselling someone else's product. So there was well, no huge yeah, product. That, that was one route, because you're right, the uh, technology was fairly well established. That was more of the piece I brought to the equation, uh, being more on the technology and the software development side. We developed our own platform and that was uh, one of my primary responsibilities. What does that mean, a platform? What, what does that mean? Well, uh, again, in today's day and age where computing is all distributed in the cloud and not a lot of us have racks of servers in the back room, that sort of stuff, what meant by a, a, a platform was uh, a set of computers and servers that we co-hosted and connected a lot of phone lines to, hundreds and thousands of phone lines to, and then with custom-developed software, and that's where I came in, that ran on those servers to basically host all of our teleconferencing services. So in other words, our cost to entry, we did have a little bit of upfront, if you will, capital cost to establish the platform. Uh, but from there, it was more maintenance of that as opposed to reselling somebody else's service and then having a, a incremental cost for the service we provided. Actually, there's still a small incremental cost for the telecom services. But yeah, somebody could start a teleconferencing services company today or web conferencing services today. You can actually resell a provider like WebEx, GoToMeeting, and uh, brand it yourself. They've got um, white label uh, options, wholesale options, and you can do that. Uh, but that's not how we were formed. We were in our own technology, which was a little bit of a double-bladed sword. It meant, you know, you got to take care of your own platform. On the same token, it meant, again, a little bit of a lower cost barrier initially. It meant we could customize um, easily because it was our own platform. Did you guys get involved in customizing for specific clients? A little bit, a little bit, yeah, absolutely. What, what kind of customizations did you make? Oh, boy, uh, a lot. <laughs> it's funny, right? When, when you're in the trenches selling and somebody goes, it would be good if you only did this. And then the salesperson comes to see you and goes, what? I just sold this. That'll be easy to do, won't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Um, but, uh, for example, one of the ones uh, we developed, and we still, I think, are pretty unique, or were pretty unique with this, uh, are uh, interpretation calls. What I mean by that is having conference calls that would have two or more foreign languages happening simultaneously. Hmm. So the model is this. Suppose you want to have a conference call that's both simultaneously in English, French, and Spanish. So we create a system where there would be, and it's, it's a little bit almost how you would imagine, one conference call in English, one conference call in French, another one in Spanish, and then you would have uh, real-time interpreters, not translators, interpreters, who would dial into those, and let's say on the English to French interpreter or translate. I, I get the terms mixed up sometimes. They would be listening to both. And so maybe in the English conference, I'd go, so our revenue forecast for next month is going to be blah, 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 blah. And then the translators for each of those who are listening on the English would speak into the French, wow. into the Spanish conference in those respective languages. And then somebody in French would go, 
I can't speak French, but we, yeah. <laughs> whatever. But then I'd come back. So uh, it's funny. It's one of those, oh, yeah, that'd be great for international companies or certainly when you have multi-language needs. But to pull it off. Um, Sounds complicated uh, to me. It, it was we, tough. We did it really well. We, it was it's a special sauce of ours for sure. Tell me about your relationship with Brad. Did you guys start Adigo to sell it? Uh, not really. Um, and again, that's getting to be about 15 years ago, right? So you, you, you know, your memory stretches a little bit. But I do distinctly remember that. And in fact, when we started Adigo, both Brian and I had other small companies of our own doing various things, not particularly directly related. And the initial idea was we would keep these other companies that we each had and then start this company together and, you know, start our empire of multi-companies each. Um, knowing that it was already at that point in the early 2000s, a fairly commoditized market and industry and product, where actually a bit of consolidation had already begun that you know, this notion of building up really, really fast and somebody buys you for a quick multiple seemed like that was a possible route. But the other thing we knew was there's actually a very high margin business. Mm. So given maybe some of those not particularly high entry costs because of some of the reasons I was describing before, that if we could get this off the ground quickly, let cash flow to ourselves, hopefully set up in a way that could mostly run itself. And then when the time came to exit, great but in the meantime let cash flow to ourselves so like, again short answer is no we didn't initially start it with the intent of a set exit so you guys thought of it more as a lifestyle business a cash flow business uh, you were going to basically hive off some of the cash each year that's correct got it and and so was that the case were you were you able to draw dividends out of the business each year uh, that you owned it how much time do we have, John? <laughs> <laughs> as much time as you need. <laughs> That's right. Um, the, the, the short answer is yes. I mean, it was successful. And in the end, uh, uh, I look to it fondly and don't regret a thing. And it's treated me very well. But that's not to say in those uh, 13, 14, 15 some odd years, there weren't some challenging times. And in fact, uh, at one point, we did a leverage acquisition of a uh, uh, another provider. I mean, this was well before we sold ourselves. And that in itself is an interesting story because that happened around 2008, 2009. And if everybody remembers what the economic climate was around 2008, 2009, especially when you're doing that from a leverage situation, there was some challenges there. Um, so yeah, notwithstanding that there are times that we had our own ups and downs, we did get to a point where um, it, it was uh, giving us a nice cash flow. I mean, you know, a decent amount of money each, every year. And once it, it really got to a steady state, might be the best way to describe it, that's when it got interesting to really try to identify when the exit would be. Because... Um, and maybe this is a little bit of advice for anybody who's looking to sell their company is make sure you know how companies in your space are evaluated. Um, as I'm sure you know, John, you know, sometimes it's a multiple of revenue. Sometimes it's a multiple of EBITDA. Sometimes it's just, a uh, the size of your customer base. You know, there's different ways, but make sure you know what that is for your industry because, if you're using the wrong calculus, uh, you know, not only are you going to have the wrong figure, but you're never going to really be able to sell because you're going to be talking the wrong language. To how, how did you learn that? How did you learn that lesson personally? Thank, thankfully, there was always enough acquisition activity in the space that we could keep an uh, eye on that. And for us, or I should say in that industry, it, it was always a multiple of revenue, like period. Because by and large, when acquisitions happened, it was for the customer base. Rarely was it for the technology or the employees or, I mean, obviously those would come along. But, you know, it's like, hey, if I'm acquiring another teleconferencing web, even just audio provider, I care most about 
your customer base. I'm going to probably integrate them into my systems anyways. So how much is your revenue of value as a multiple? What kind of multiple on revenue are, are, are you looking at it in the teleconferencing space? Yeah, uh, roughly from about three quarters to about two. So, so three quarters of one year's revenue to about two years. Yeah, so not, so not, so not huge. Um, so again, to that finding the exit point, because that's I think where I started that little bit of a, uh, answer, is it became a bit of a challenge. You know, it's like, okay, every year it's throwing off a decent amount of cash, because again, it's a relatively high margin business, uh, well over 50% gross margins. Um, and then let's just pick a number in that range I was saying, let's say a 1.5 multiple. You then have that challenge of, all right, we'll pick a number, right? Let's say I'm able to sell my company for, uh, uh, I have a million dollar company a year annually, and I'm able to sell it for 1.5. Never mind taxes and all that other kind of stuff. If this is a 50% margin, et cetera, et cetera, off of one, 1 million a year, that means I can make that if I hold on to the company for another, again, depending upon what that sale multiple is, one to three years, right? So there's this challenge of is now the right time to sell or should I hold on to it for another two or three years and make that same amount? And then afterwards, I'm still making that same amount. And how did you come to that decision in your own minds? Um, a little bit was we felt like those multiples had kind of peaked and maybe even declined a little bit. I mean, they're still in that range I described, but even seven, eight years ago, maybe it was more like 1.5 to 2.5, right? So we saw that sliding a little bit, but more importantly, and actually this is probably a big piece of advice, is both Brad and I recognize for ourselves, we were kind of, I don't want to say done with it, but we, we were reaching the end of our uh, enthusiasm, might be a different but, way to say. But why not? I mean, it sounds like you could have kind of put your feet up on the desk and and let the cash kind of just roll in. Why yeah. not? It, you know, why not get involved in in other investments, do other things, and and hold on to it as sort of a passive investor, especially just yeah. uh, say that the margins were huge. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and in fact, we did for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I. What changed? Uh, I. I know for me, I got to a point that even with the less amount of time, um, I still, I, I, we were able to get to the point where I was able to put into it. Uh, you know, thankfully, it got to a point where I didn't necessarily have to work 40 or more hours a week. It was less than that. I had the freedom to take time off, all that kind of stuff. So it had gotten more to the lifestyle business that mm-hmm. uh, you know we originally intended but it never went to zero or a handful of hours a week you know there was still a significant uh, amount of my time that uh, had to provide and fundamentally there that that's still a bet though too that uh, I could sell now or I can wait and if I wait, the bet is I'll keep it going at the same level for another, again, let's pick a number, two to three or four years, right? And after a while, even though the bet seemed pretty good, the odds were starting to go against it. But it's like, but do I want to make sure that bet pays off for another two or three years by paying attention to the market, showing up uh, every, you know, whatever, a couple of days? Uh, you know, ultimately, Brian and I were the bottom line responsible, you know, if the platform crashed you know thankfully it did very very rarely right um but once a year maybe even less thankfully it would have this horse you know cash traffic crash every uh every system does right don't let any technology person tell you it's a hundred percent so you you had that sense in your own mind that you know you were still at the table. You still had a lot of chips on the table and you, you weren't able to totally feel that sense of freedom that associated with literally. Yeah, that, that's correct. Yeah. So let me, let, let me give you a for example. I'm an avid bicyclist. I love to bicycle. It's kind of what I do. 
and that includes you know going for multi-day multi-week bicycle rides so in the back of my own mind could i take a two three week bike tour where i completely unplug no computers no phones the answer was no right the answer was no yeah yeah and after a while that just felt to be like more of a tether that I didn't want to have anymore. So let's get into the sale itself. So you and Brad, it sounds like came to a meeting of the minds that it was time to sell. Was, what was that discussion like? Was there, was there immediate kind of alignment that it was the time to sell? Was it, was it a bit of friction to figure out? Maybe, maybe not. Um, not really. And Brad, if you ever watch this, you know I love you, buddy. We're still great friends. He's a great guy. So I don't want anything that uh, I say from here to ever reflect badly on him. But uh, in the same way that the relationship between any two people sometimes, you know, has different oscillations. You know, there there were a few times when uh, yours truly was like, that's it. I'm done with this. I'm walking out the door. And Brad was like, uh, no, you're not. <laughs> and I'm not ready to give it up yet. Um, there were a few times when that role was a little bit reversed. Um, thankfully, you know, it was never really particularly contentious or, or uh, you know, I can't remember anything where it got particularly heated between us or anything like that. Again, we were really good partners. But what about specifically around this issue of when to sell? Did yeah. we, How did you guys get aligned around that that topic? Well, so as the years went by, you know, we, we would visit, we'd have our annual um, kind of review, if you will, our, our end of year review of what we did, looking ahead to next year, forecasting, all that, you know, the textbook 101 that every company should do, and I hope does do. Uh, and part of that discussion would always be, are we ready to exit yet? Hmm. And uh, you know, we, we'd certainly have conversations about it at other times during the year, but we finally got to a point where it's like, is this the year? Using some of the criteria I was talking about before, what do the multiples look like? You know, we're projecting this revenue, you know, and sometimes some of our large customers would go, you know, that's just churn of any business. So I remember one year in particular where uh, it's maybe like, 10% of our business was wrapped up in one or two of our major customers. We lost them back to back. Just one of those things. I think one even went bankrupt. It wasn't even our fault. So we're like, oh man, that's 10% of the value of our company, right? Went away. And if we, mm-hmm. you, know, you, you, you do this math, you start to say, well, if I don't get that back, then what if we lose another one? Uh, should I sell now? So you start having those conversations and then, you know, emotionally, we were like, I think this might be it. And uh, uh, so it, it wasn't so much convincing one another as much as looking inside each other and says, and this was maybe it. Would, you know, looking at yourself and saying, are you, would now be a good time to sell? Would you really be ready? And we both, rather than asking the other guy, maybe that was it. Not me saying, Brad, are you ready to sell? And Brad saying to me, are you ready to sell, CJ? It's like, ask the question yourself to yourself and if you both say yes, then the time is there. And we just reached that point, I think, emotionally. So what did you do next? Uh, well, what was kind of funny is we essentially reached that point, right? We're like, okay, so we, we better start doing this. And uh, both Brian and I had had some minor experience selling companies before, nothing at, at this scale. Uh, Brad, a little bit more than me. Um, but to be honest with you, John, we were a little bit lazy about it because, again, it had been a number of years. There had been a little bit flux. They're like, oh, well, okay, now's the time. Uh, you know, and again, it was the end of the year. We were doing it. So, hey, sometime in the first quarter, we'll revisit this and come up with a plan, that kind of thing. Um, and so once we – and we also knew we probably had to line a few things up to make ourselves look more attractive. You know, it's just the normal house cleaning I think any business does, nothing major. I'm like, okay, let's get that taken care of. So we, we started to really poke around a little bit, nothing really serious. And then we got an unsolicited offer. Uh, I can't remember the company or even a lot of the particulars at the moment. But I mean, it, it, it was legit too. I mean, it wasn't like, hey, are you looking to sell your company like some random broker or anything? I mean, this was a company that said, 
hey, we'll make you an offer. Like from literally the first phone call to when a rough term sheet was like a week or two. And, and what, 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 what multiple of their revenue were they offering? Uh, it was pretty low. In the end, we, 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 we knew we couldn't take the deal. I mean, from the get-go, it was, uh, I, I can't remember. I want to say it was maybe a 1X. One, one Got it. Okay. Uh, so it was, and a lot of the terms weren't really good. But that was like, hey, look. <laughs> it was kind of funny. It, what that did more than anything else, John, I do remember this very specifically, is even though very early on we knew we couldn't take that deal, it got us both dreaming of what it would be like if we did. Mm, yeah. and, and so from there, we got really serious about it. And ultimately, we got a broker involved okay. uh, to help us sell. And that made a big difference for us. Where did it go from there? So the broker did what? They listed it or how did they market the business? Yeah, it was a uh, company down at Colorado Springs. Um, uh, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but doesn't um, matter. I'd recommend them. Uh, we worked with them, uh, did, and they had a little bit of experience, not maybe so much directly in the teleconferencing uh, um, space, but telecommunications and high tech more broadly. So they understood how to evaluate us and the connections and, and those sorts of things. So just worked with us to kind of put up, put together a package, due diligence package, all that kind of good stuff. And did they put a price on the business, CJ, or did they uh, request offers without sort of putting a price on it? I think it was a little bit of both. Uh, I, I, I don't think they put a price on it because mm -hmm. uh, I think that it, um, no, I, I don't think they did. I think it's one of those things where we gave them an idea of where we need to be so that if they were doing some pre-qualification, they knew keep on talking or not. But uh, no, yeah. I, I think they solicited where did, where did you guys need to be? So clearly one times revenue wasn't going to do it. What, did, what was your set of minimum number in terms of valuation? I want to say it was probably about a one and a quarter. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the play there was the additional terms because uh, how much we got in cash up front, earn out, those sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, and again, piece of advice, uh, you know, we maybe gave up a little bit on the multiple for more up front. And that and just so, felt more comfortable to us. Well, yeah, let's get into that. So did you receive multiple offers uh, from the broker? Did you eventually? Yeah, well, actually, we, we did. Uh, I can't. I think from like literally the day we made the first call to the broker to when we closed with whom we ultimately sold to is maybe a seven month, maybe eight months. And how many offers did you get in that, in that time? I want to say three. And of the three, um, maybe just walk through the range kind of low to high, uh, I think you and Brad wanted to get one and a quarter. Like how I'm trying to get a sense. What, what was the range? Was it like a huge difference in offers or were they all sort of kind of roughly the same in terms of cash or, or in terms of valuation? Right. Yeah. Well, in terms of the valuation, they're pretty close. Um, one of them, we, we kind of dismissed out of hand. I, gosh, I think the range of valuations were probably about like 1.1 to maybe 1.3, 1. close to 1.4. Times revenue. Yeah, times revenue. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, which, you know, is a sizable difference. Sure. For, for, for example, I think one of them was something like 25% cash up front, then like a year after before the rest of the earn out. It, it, it was just like, can't do it. And then another one was like, big chunk up front and also um, what they wanted from us as far as sticking around those. So th there were some other pieces on the chessboard beyond the multiple that really made a big difference. Yeah. I'd love to get into what those were. So, so you had the three offers that didn't vary dramatically in value, although between 1.1 and 1.4, there obviously is a variance there. Right. Um, so the, the drivers of your decision-making, one was the cash up front. The, the other piece, was it an earn out or was it a vendor take back where you were essentially loaning money to the company that was buying you? Or was it a true earn out where you, there was a sort of a bonus? Uh, maybe just describe what that looked like. 
Yeah, it was a uh, uh, performance-based, most of them were all performance-based uh, earnouts. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, very, yeah. That's okay. Good. And so the cash up front, meant, again, among the three offers, the low was the 25%. What was the high in terms of cash up front as a percentage? Uh, roughly 75%. Got it. Got it. So, so 75% cash up front, 25% in sort of performance incentives for the future. Tied to how many years in the future? How long did you have to stay? About uh, a year in rough, okay. rough terms. And it was tied to top line revenue, I'm assuming? Uh, yes. Got yeah. it. And, Got and it. there are a couple other t- technical to the business things. But yeah, that, that yeah. was was there anything else that made that offer more or less attractive? So, so there was the valuation, there was the proportion of cash up front. What else made that attra- that offer the, the most attractive? Um, <laughs> that, that was the biggest one. Mm-hmm. But, but there's a little bit of the whole match piece where especially, you know, and even if 25% is going to be an earnout you want to have confidence that the company you're selling this to is actually going to perform, right? Because mm-hmm. the last thing you want to do is then come back and go, well, no, you don't get any more because you didn't reach those metrics. And then you're feeling like, well, you didn't reach those metrics because you actually suck. Right? How, how did you evaluate their suckiness? How did you evaluate <laughs> or lack thereof? How did, you, how did you sort of go about evaluating their potential to help you hit your earnout? Yeah, we did a little bit of our own due diligence, I guess you'd call Like what? Um, got some of their numbers, um, uh, you know, probably not to the same extent they had of ours, but, uh, you know, signed all the right NDAs, all that sort of stuff, and looked at their uh, financials over the last couple of years. How are they performing? Are they going up, down, you know, steady? You, know, you don't want to sell to a company that has a significant chunk of your future earnings being on earnout, and they're on a downward slide. Mm-hmm. That's going to be telling. Um, asking industry uh, connections. Hey, have you heard of these folks? You know those sorts of things. Just kind of get the word on the street. Yeah, yeah. And and what did they see in you? You mentioned that companies acquiring businesses in this teleconferencing space. It's really all about revenue. So beyond just revenue, what did they see in Adigo that made you guys attractive as an acquisition candidate? Oh, yours truly. I mean, (laughs) good looking Uh, (laughs) co-founder. Very modest as well, right? Yeah. Uh, I think the big big thing, John, was our customer base. We had uh, very loyal customers with very low churn. What was your churn rate? Uh, Again, it varied, um, but two to three percent a year. A month, a year. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that is incredible. Yeah. So wow. yeah, we just really valued our level of customer service and our level of reliability. Mm-hmm. And that translated again into very loyal customers. Um, our profit margins with our customers were generally higher than industry average a lot because of, uh, because of those same reasons. So, you know, those kind of went hand in hand. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I think those were the biggest things. I mean, I mean, you know, I like to, I was joking before, but I do like to say we had a good team and good technology sure. to back it up. But fundamentally, I think it, you know, the the acquirer and even potential acquirers, I think, could have a high degree of confidence that this customer base would continue to uh, perform for them. So you had these three offers in play. Did you did you kind of use one off the other to try to get them each to kind of come up a little bit in what they were offering? Yeah, we did a little bit. Um, okay. Again, it's it, it's funny. It, it, you, you lose track of the particulars when you get, even get a little bit of time behind you. Uh, I think I mentioned this before, but you know, one of the offers quickly got off the table. So uh, you know, the three relatively quickly became two, and I forget the exact reasons. I think it was just some of the particulars, and we went back to them, and they're like, "We're not going to budge at all on what." we were even most concerned about like, okay. And, and if I remember correctly, I think that was even one of the lower multiples with mm. the lower upfront. But, and again, that's always a little bit scary too, because you're like, okay, I'm going to walk away from that. But now if these other two don't play out, <laughs> you know, I've just burned that yeah. 
you know, not so much burn the bridge, but that's probably not going to come back. But then we were left with the two. Um, yeah, we, we did do a little bit of negotiation back and forth. Um, you know, I, I would, in the end, I don't think we changed it much, maybe within a few percentage points. And I think then maybe some of more of the uh, additional stuff, like the amount of time we had to still work for them, uh, team, some of these technology-related pieces I was talking about before. And the other thing we did, John, is at that point, we let our broker do most of those negotiations. Like, you know, obviously with us and via our direction, mm -hmm. but that helped out a lot because it, it took the emotion out of it. Mm. Uh, even though I do uh, uh, think of myself as a fairly decent negotiator, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. Uh, but this is your baby, you know, millions of dollars and you've been doing it for 12 or 13 years. You know, you're, you're getting in there and you're like, uh, you know, um, and the person on the other side, I can totally respect that. They're the buyer. They're like, Hey, I just met you guys. And maybe you're selling me a, you know, a, a pile of dirt, you know? So to have our broker be the one to communicate our requests really took a lot of the emotion out of it. I think in the end, uh, did real well. How did you and Brad work through disagreements at this stage when you're evaluating the three offers down to two? What's the dynamic between you and Brad like? Excellent question. Um, because once you do get in the middle of it, it's really surprising how easily emotions can kind of start going. Um, uh, my background is I'm an engineer. Uh, I'm a nerd. I'm very analytically driven, right? So I like to think, you know, I think with my head and not my heart as much with, with, with business decisions, right? But uh, no, once you're in the thick of it, you, you really do kind of easily start going, what? They want another $10 from us? No way. You know, <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. You know, you got to throw away a million dollar deal, millions of dollars of deal because there's something silly. Um, so I, I guess what I'm really interested in is you and Brad, right. were you guys a hundred percent aligned on everything or were there times where he's like, CJ, that's fine. Let's just do the deal. Or you were like, Brad, like relax. We, you know, yeah. what was there, it like? Between yeah, there was, a, there was a little bit of that. And so my advice there was, and a, a lot of this, I think, got driven from that unsolicited offer that I described before that mm -hmm. kind of came our way, where mm -hmm. even though we had kind of begun to be in the mindset, we weren't like ready for it. That kind of got us each thinking about things that we realized we hadn't thought about. So when it really came time to do this, you know, you were asking before, how did we get started? And this is a piece of advice, especially if you have partners, draw those absolute lines in the sand that you may have before you start. Because, what were your absolute lines in the sand? Um, there was a fiscal one and my continuing commitment. And those what were, were those? Uh, I had a certain amount of money that I wanted to get out of it within a certain time frame. Uh, yeah, I mean, I won't give the exact figures, but, but it was uh, a number. Yeah. Yeah. It was a number. It was a number. And, you know, and obviously it's easy to drive that to the sale price and the multiple and all that. I was like, okay, this, this is the line I, you know, not $1 below and, and being very realistic about it. Right. So right. even that was a debate to say, is that really realistic CJ? Oh, okay. This is really it. But then the other thing was for a variety of my own reasons, um, I didn't want to be um, particularly com uh, uh, committed to the, the sale for very long. I was obviously willing to help with transition and uh, continue to work for a little bit for sure. And, and I did, and in fact, even still do a very little bit. But um, I wasn't looking to be an employee of whoever acquired them. I, I, I was going some other direction. So those are my two absolutes. And so did you have a number of months you were willing to work full time for the acquirer? That was a kind of a line yeah. in the sand. What was your number? Uh, in round terms, it was about six months full time. And then how did those two things, the amount of time that you were willing to invest in the business and the actual number you needed to get out of it, how, how, were, how was Brad able to answer those questions? Did he have similar numbers in his mind and how did they line up with yours? Yeah, they, they were very, they were very similar. Basically that was a little bit of a negotiation 
maybe that's even overstating it, that again, we both did from the get-go. In other words, my number and his number, we realized we need to make those the same. Yeah. You know, thankfully we both started pretty near. So yeah. tweaking that to a common number was pretty easy. Uh, but once we did that, then we were, then we were ready to go to the races because to your question of when they would come back with different counter offers and all that, you know, in the moment we were able to, what do you think? Yes, no. But it was a really good gut check to go. Now, wait a minute, two months ago, you said you're absolute. Oh yeah, you're right. It still meets that. Okay. I guess I'm with that or vice versa. Got it. Got it. How has this changed your life? I would, you know, um, you're, you're now past the earn out period, although you're still helping out a little bit. Um, you've sold for what is for most people life changing amount of money. You know, what, what's different for you? Again, I, I will definitely always say that my time with the Digo was good. I am very proud of the business we created, the people we employed, the services we provided. Um, yeah, it's a huge part of my life and uh, it's very proud to be a part of it. Um, but to your question, what has changed? Uh, I definitely feel freer. I've taken the last year to do a variety of things that uh, I'm not sure I would have been able to do otherwise. I've been mainly doing some volunteer work for my college alma mater. Um, and so that's been good. Uh, as good as the exit was, uh, I, I, I can't not work for the rest of my life. Uh, if for no other reason, my, my dear wife, who I love, uh, very, very much has said, all right, it, it's probably about time for you to figure out what's next. So it's, it's actually given me the freedom to really figure out what I'm going to do next. Um, and actually, John, what's interesting is... Well, two things. Number one, uh, I guess I do realize I learned a fair bit of things. And uh, I'm not sure how many of your viewers or listeners will find any value in some of the things I've been talking about today. But, um, you know, I guess every now and then I do reflect and go, yeah, I probably did learn some lessons here that might be valuable for some other folks. And, you know, yeah. look, I think I don't, I wouldn't underestimate that at all. I think personally, I've learned more about business in the months in negotiating an exit than in the years leading up to it. I, I really feel like it is a, a cold shower. It is an absolute, uh, you are stark naked in the process of selling your business. You see immediately where the value is. You see immediately where you've screwed up. Uh, and the lessons there are poignant and everlasting. And so I think if for no other reason than just to get those lessons, to go through the sale process, to capture that education, I can say firsthand, I, did, I didn't get it until I went to sell yeah. uh, what really business was about. Um, I, I'd agree with all that. Absolutely. Yeah. So I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't discount that. Now I'll probably get tons of comments now. <laughs> People saying <laughs> you money grubbing evil doer. Oh. You know, it's not all about selling, but I, from an education perspective, I don't think there's any other way I've been uh, well, witness to. Yeah. I mean, because that's the other thing too, is that unless you specifically start your co- company with a, very clear and decisive. We are definitely exiting this way on this type of schedule. Mm. That begs the question of, well, ultimately, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to hand it off to your family? Are you going to do this to the day you die? I mean, a lot of times as entrepreneurs, we, we, we think we know the answer to that, but I think it's your point, John, until you actually do it, you're like, oh yeah, I, I, I got to sell this. And this is what this is about. And all the things you just said. You know, see, I'll, I'll add one other thing. Go ahead. Um, the first couple months after the sale, uh, it was really weird. Hmm. Uh, as I like to describe, or how I described it before was, um, I started delivering newspapers as a local paper boy on my bike when I was like 11 or 12. I did the same. Yeah, all right. <laughs> I know. Boy, I feel so old. <laughs> I know. Like, newspapers, the hell is that? I know. It's throwing up on a, right, right, exactly. Uh, um, you know, worked all through high school and college, et cetera, et cetera. So 
you know, I was in my late forties and sold the company. And now I had all this time on my hand and it took me literally a couple months before I could even embrace what that was about. Like I was waking up going, okay, I got, I got to do something. I got to work. Oh no, I guess I don't have to work. Or <laughs> I didn't realize how much of a, uh, just day to day strain, you know, and, and it, it, I, I had to, I have to even laugh a little bit in retrospect because I just went through a program looking at some issues dealing with uh, retirees, which thankfully age-wise I'm still a little bit away from, but you know, that's a big challenge for a lot of retirees that so much of your identity is tied up in your job and your career that once you retire, there's a social isolation factor there. And what do you do with your life and your, and your identity? And I wasn't expecting that at all. Again, I'm still, you know, middle of my life. I'm going to start another business. But for a while there, it was kind of an interesting challenge of like, what do I do next? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and let, let me give you a quick plug for a product we just launched called Prescore. You get a prescore.com. We've actually, what, what, what CJ's talking about is very common. We've got a tool you can go through which will evaluate how ready you are to exit. And it's all these issues that you're talking about, CJ. Like, ha, have you defined what it is that you want to go do or are you going to feel socially isolated? Um, you know, have you thought about how you want to treat your employees, what your bottom line is from a numbers perspective, as well as like sort of uh, how much of that upfront? So, uh, kind of a kind of a cool little tool if you want to think through some of the things CJ's just uh, been describing. Prescore.com. CJ, the um, this was fun. I really appreciate you spending the time with us. If people wanted to reach out and connect with you, uh, is there a best way to do that? Sure. Uh, happy to. Uh, Email is probably the easiest. Uh, uh, C-J-W-H-E-L-A-N at F-R-T, well, sorry, C-W-H-E-L-A-N at F-R-T-G, as in Front Range Technology Group, dot com. Um, uh, well, I am you're on, also on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn, C-J, C-J Whalen, uh, pretty W-H-E-L-A-N, very easy to find there. Uh, I am on Twitter, CJ, I think it's underscore Whalen.3. I know I should know that off the top of my head, but uh, uh, I'm pretty easy to track down. I, um, I have actually had a, 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 a second or a, a different life in, in uh, municipal politics. Oh, wow. So, so when you Google me, a lot of that stuff shows up, so I'm not too hard to track down. Okay, happy, cool. Happy to talk to anybody. I didn't know about that part of your life. I should have asked you. CJ, it was a great pleasure. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.